Thanks for downloading today's podcast of Clearly Seen, taught by Mike Kokoris. I think you're going to enjoy what Mike has for you today. And if you're ever in the San Fernando Valley area of Los Angeles, we invite you to Lindley Church. Mike would love to meet you personally and answer any questions you have. Feel free to email your comments and questions to michael at kokoris.com. That's michael at C-O-C-O-R-I-S dot com. Now, let's hear from Mike. Does God have a future program for Israel? That might not exactly strike you as the kind of question um, you uh, grapple with or struggle with on a daily basis. But if you begin to study the Bible seriously, that is eventually a question you will have to confront I might also add that there are some, actually, some personal ramifications uh, to the answer that you give to that question. That is, how you answer that question could uh, affect you personally. So let me ask, does God have a future program for Israel? Well, obviously, there are two possible answers. Some say yes, and some say no. Those who say yes are called premillennialists, which means they believe that Jesus Christ is going to come back down to the earth and he's going to set up a kingdom on this earth and rule on the earth for a thousand years. Those who are premillennialists claim that all of the promises in the Old Testament will be fulfilled literally. And they have in mind two great covenants. The first is the Abrahamic covenant in Genesis chapter 12, where God promised Abraham that he would bless him. And then in the book of Genesis, he made a covenant with him to give him the land. The second covenant is in 2 Samuel chapter 7, where God promised David that he would have an everlasting covenant. So, pre-millennialists believe that Jesus Christ is going to come back before the thousand-year reign on the earth to fulfill those very covenants made to Abraham and David. They say then, God has a future program for Israel. Israel will one day occupy the land. There will be a kingdom in Israel. The other possible answer to this question is no. Those who give that answer to the question are called amillennialist. Ah, ah meaning no or negative, no millennium. Now, they go to these promises in the Old Testament and they say that they are fulfilled in the New Testament or some other such explanation, which I'll mention in a minute. At any rate, they say that uh, if you claim that there is a future program for Israel, then you don't understand the New Testament. That all the New Testament promises us is salvation, and uh, therefore there is no future program for Israel. Now, as you can imagine, there is a battle royal between these two points of view. If you are a pre-millennialist, then you claim that the ah-millennialists spiritualize the Old Testament. 
if you are an amillennialist, you claim that the premillennialists don't understand the New Testament. And you claim that uh, those promises in the Old Testament are fulfilled spiritually, either in the church or in some cases in heaven. And those few amillennialists who believe they were fulfilled literally say that they were fulfilled even before the church age. So the battle is royal between these two camps. Now my question is, does God have a program for Israel? And I think that ultimately the answer is going to come down to how do you interpret those prophecies in the Old Testament? And ultimately, even beyond that, the answer is going to come down to what does the New Testament say? And if you're hearing all of this and never gotten into this kind of a Bible study before, you might ask, and what difference does that make to me? Well, there is a passage of Scripture that answers this question. In the New Testament, it tells us very pointedly and categorically whether or not God has a future program for Israel and in the process tells us some of the ramifications for us. May I invite your attention to Romans chapter 11. Romans chapter 11, and I'm going to read beginning with verse 11. Romans chapter 11, verse 11 says, I say then, have they stumbled that they should fall? Certainly not. But through their fall, to provoke them to jealousy, salvation has come to the Gentiles. Now, if their fall is riches for the world and their failure riches for the Gentiles, how much more their fullness? For I speak to you Gentiles, inasmuch as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry. If by any means I may provoke to jealousy those who are my flesh and save some of them. For if their being cast away is the reconciling of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? And if the first fruit is holy, the lump is also holy. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. And if some of the branches were broken off, and you, being a wild olive tree, were grafted in among them, and with them become a partaker of the root and the fatness of the olive tree, do not boast against the branches. But if you boast, remember that you do not support the root, but the root supports you. You will say then, branches are broken off that I might be grafted in. Well said, because of unbelief they were broken off, and you stand by faith. Do not be haughty, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he may not spare you either. Therefore, consider the goodness and severity of God on those who fell. Severity, but toward you, goodness, if you continue in his goodness. Otherwise, you also will be cut off. And they also, if they do not continue in unbelief, will be grafted in. For God is able to graft them in again. For if you were cut off of the olive tree, which is wild by nature, and were grafted contrary to nature into a good olive tree, how much more will these, who are the natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree? 
Now, folks, <clears throat> this can be a rather full, complicated passage of Scripture. But if you wade through all the details, the conclusion is rather simple. Let me see if I can simplify this rather complicated passage of Scripture. It all begins with the first ten verses of this chapter, where Paul talks about the fact that the Jews rejected their Messiah. The nation of Israel were in unbelief. As a matter of fact, Paul specifically says in verse 9 of chapter 11, that their table became a snare and a trap and a stumbling block and a recompense to them. Israel stumbled. Israel did not believe in the Messiah. Now, with that as a backdrop, Paul introduces this question in verse 11. I say then, have they stumbled that they should fall? Paul entertains the question, the very question that I posed a moment ago. Does God have a future program for Israel? Paul concedes in the opening verses of this chapter that because of their unbelief, they have spiritually stumbled. Now the question is, are they going to fall, so to speak, flat on their face and never get up again? Is the stumbling fatal? Or will they get up from the stumble? And does God have a future program for them? So Paul asks, have they stumbled that they should fall? Meaning, is this rejection by Israel of the Messiah permanent? Is it going to be that they do not have a future place in God's program as a nation. His answer, verse 11, certainly not. This is a phrase that he has used repeatedly throughout Romans. In this book, more than any other he has written, he asks a question and he immediately answers it with an emphatic denial. The old King James translated this, God forbid in many places. The New King James, from which I'm reading, translates it, certainly not. And it's an emphatic denial of the question he has just asked. No, they have not fallen. Now, he goes on to explain that, look at verse 11, but though they fell to provoke them to jealousy, salvation has come to the Gentiles. Now, if their fall is the riches of the world and their failure riches for the Gentiles, how much more their fullness? All right, this is key to understanding, actually, this whole paragraph. His answer is no, their stumble is not permanent. Their fall is not eternal. And then he turns around and he says two things. Because they stumbled, Two things will happen. Number one, the Gentiles got saved. That is precisely what he is saying in verse 11. Through their fall, salvation has come to the Gentiles. Because Israel were in unbelief, the gospel came to us. 
who are not Jewish to us who are Gentiles. Now, even though this was in God's eternal plan, which is granted, yet in the book of Acts, it was when Paul and the others went to the Jews and they rejected the gospel that Paul then turned to the Gentiles. So if you just read the book of Acts, <laughs> it's apparent. That literally, historically happened, though it was clearly in the plan of God. Historically, in the book of Acts, it was when the Jews refused to hear Paul that he would then turn to the Gentiles. So because of their unbelief, one of the things that happened is we got in on salvation. The second thing that happened is that this will result ultimately in their salvation. Notice what he says in verse 11. For through their fall to provoke them to jealousy, God saved the Gentiles. So the second thing he says is going to happen is this. The Gentiles uh, are going to trust the Messiah. They're going to trust Christ. And that is going to provoke the Jews to jealousy and ultimately they are going to get saved because the Gentiles got saved. Incredible statement. Actually, that idea was stated as far back as Deuteronomy. In Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 21, God said they were going to turn from him and he was going to provoke them to jealousy by turning to the Gentiles. That verse in Deuteronomy 32, 21 is quoted by Paul in Romans 10, 19. So that the Bible, both in the Old and in the New Testaments, teaches that God is going to provoke Gentiles, I'm sorry, provoke the Jews to salvation, to faith in Christ, by saving the Gentiles. But now that tells us that this fall is not permanent. That implies that they are once again going to come into the blessing of God. As a matter of fact, Paul says, verse 12, Now if their fall is the riches for the world, and their failure the riches for the Gentiles, how much more their fullness? Now you mark that verse, and you mark it well. If you want to know the answer to the question, does God have a future program for Israel, then my friend, that verse is clearly saying the answer is yes. It is saying that Israel is an unbelief, and because Israel is an unbelief, the Gentiles came to faith in Christ. And then it's turning around and saying, and because the Gentiles came to faith in Christ, Jews are going to be provoked to jealousy, and they're going to come into their fullness. Later in the passage, he says, all Israel, meaning the nation of Israel, will be saved. So Romans chapter 11 is teaching that God has a future program for Israel. Matter of fact, verse 12 is saying, when they fell, the result of their fall is all these Gentiles got saved. Now if that happened when they fell, what's going to happen when they come back? You know the answer? 
And what's left to happen? I mean, he's suggesting something catastrophic's going to happen. He's suggesting something stupendous is going to take place. You know what it is? It's the redemption, not of the Gentiles, but of creation. Because in Romans 8, he talked about all creation is waiting for redemption. When Christ comes back and sets up a kingdom, and ultimately the new heavens and the new earth, when Israel is finally gathered in, and the scripture teaches God is ultimately going to redeem not just the Gentiles and not just the Jews, but all of creation is going to be saved. So, very simply, this passage is teaching that uh, God has a future program for Israel. This is not to say that each individual doesn't have to trust Christ. He does. I'm not suggesting that. It eliminates that personal responsibility. I am just saying that the book of Zechariah teaches that when the Messiah comes back, all Israel will look upon him whom they have pierced. God is going to save well, this very passage says, all Israel. Look at verse 26. So all Israel will be saved. A nation as a nation will turn to the Lord. So that's the answer to the question I posed at the beginning. Does God have a future program for Israel? Yes, he does. He is saving Gentiles in the meantime, but their fullness is coming back, and he is going to save all Israel. Now, that's pretty simple. What follows in this passage is Paul's application, if you will, to us. Uh, matter of fact, it seems to me that in the verses that follow, in verses 13 through 24, the rest of the paragraph, he gives us Gentiles two basic pieces of advice. The first is in verses 13 to 16, and the second is in verses 17 to 24. So based on the fact that God does have a future program for Israel, here is what Paul says to us. First, he says, there is something you should know. He says, verse 13, For I speak to you Gentiles, inasmuch as I am an apostle of the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry. If by any means... I may provoke to jealousy those who are my flesh and save some of them. He is saying, uh, you need to know that uh, I would do anything I could to uh, save Jews. And the implication of these two verses is uh, save some of them now even. So he is saying, uh, I'm magnifying my ministry. I'm an apostle to the, Jew, to the Gentiles and and uh, if by any means I could provoke Jews to jealousy by going to Gentiles, I'd do it. That is precisely what he is saying. I think it's kind of remarkable that this passage is actually teaching that God saves people because they get jealous. That's kind of an interesting twist. Uh, and what it's specifically saying, I mean, he says it twice. He says it in verse 11. And he comes back and says it again in verse 14. I want you to know uh, that uh, I'd do anything to 
to see Jews come to Christ. I'd even go give the gospel to Gentiles so that uh, I could provoke them to jealousy. An interesting concept, isn't it? That we should get saved and that should provoke the Jews to jealousy. Let me tell you a story. I had an unusual opportunity once in that I and some other uh, men met with some Jewish rabbis and we had a dialogue over Christianity and Judaism. Um, and um, one of their great objections is we were trying to proselyte them and they were upset about that. So we were in the midst of telling them that, it, that we, you know, we believed the Old Testament and that, uh, you know, we, we just was telling them that Jesus was the Messiah because he is. We're having a great time. I mean, all these Jewish rabbis sitting around. And one of these rabbis said to us, this is a quotation. He said to us, well, you know, just don't proselyte us. Provoke us to jealousy. And I like to fell off my chair. That is precisely what a Jewish rabbi told me. I was in the meeting when he said it. Now, Paul says, I want you to know, God's going to save Israel. And meantime, he's saving Gentiles. And uh, I want you to know, if my giving the gospel to the Gentiles and provoke the Jews to jealousy and make them come to Christ, I'd do it in a minute. Now he continues, verse 15. For if they're being cast away is the reconciling of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? For if the first fruit is holy, the lump is also holy, and if the root is holy, so are the branches. Now, there's a little bit of an interpretive problem here. He's obviously beginning to use an illustration. Um, what he's saying is something of what we've already talked about. He's explaining it further, and he's simply saying, if they're rejecting the Messiah was the reconciling of the world, which is what I suggested a moment ago, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? And then he says, now let me explain. Those Jews that get saved now are the first fruits. And he is suggesting that Jews get saved today and that they are the first fruits of all the nation that's going to get saved later. He says, if the first fruits is holy, the lump also is holy. If the root is holy, so are the branches. Now, I need to explain something because the way I've interpreted verse 16 is not the way it's often interpreted. In a few minutes, Paul is going to take this illustration and he's going to expand it. And this is where this passage gets a little complicated. And um, um, what he does when he expands it is he seems to be using... Uh, the olive tree illustration uh, for a reference to the patriarchs and the Abrahamic covenant. I'll explain all that in just a minute. And so commentators very often take that and say that um, uh, that's the explanation for verse 13. I'm sorry, verse 16. I do not think that quite fits the flow of the passage. I think Paul changes the illustration a bit, which he has the right to do. So that I'm going to interpret verse 16 not as the first fruits being the patriarchs or the Abrahamic covenant, and therefore Israel will come to Christ. But I think based on verse 15 and verse 14, actually verse 16 is explaining verse 15, verse 15 is explaining verse 14. Am I getting too complicated? Very simply put, what I think verse 16 is saying is this. In verse 14, he started out saying, I want to provoke some to get saved now. 
and they're the first fruits. And if, if they come to Christ now, they're simply the first fruits of what's going to happen later. Very simply, then, he is saying this. Gentiles need to know that Israel will get saved later. That's his point. That was implied in verse 12 when he talked about their fullness. And I think in verses 13, 14, 15, and 16, he is saying that Jews are going to get saved. Like verse 15, what will their acceptance be? That's God's future program for Israel. That's the first fruit. That's the lump is holy, the root is holy, and so will the branches be. And the branches is that future program of Israel. So that's the first application he makes. He begins in verse 13 addressing us Gentiles and saying they're going to be accepted later. There's a second thing that he says, beginning in verse 17 and going down through verse 24. He says, and if some of the branches were broken off and you being a wild olive tree, were grafted in among them, and with them become a partaker of the root and the fatness of the olive tree, do not boast against the branches. All right, here's what he's saying. Don't you get too proud. You see, the whole point of this passage is that Israel has rejected the Messiah, and as a result of Israel rejecting the Messiah, We got in, right? Now he says, don't boast. And he picks up this illustration of the olive tree, and he develops it. So let's go through these verses carefully and see if I can explain it. He says, if some of the branches were broken off, what's that? That's Israel. They were broken off. They were olive branches broken off the tree. And you, being wild, a wild olive tree, uh, that is, uh, we were not the natural tree. He's using the fact that God made a covenant with Israel. They are the natural tree, but their limbs got broken off. They rejected the Messiah. Now, we are the wild olive tree, and he says in verse 17, we got grafted in and became a root and a fatness of the tree. So we got grafted in. But he says, don't boast. Get the picture? Now, some people have criticized Paul's illustration because um, anybody that uh, knows anything about grafting knows you don't do that, right? Any of you play with plants? You don't graft wild olive branches into a cultivated tree. You cultivate the tree and graft it the other way. Some of you are shaking your heads. You know what I'm talking about. And so they've criticized Paul's illustration. Paul concedes that this is uh, not the natural way to do it. Look at verse 24. Much later he says, For if you were cut out of of the olive tree, which is wild by nature, and were grafted contrary to nature. See the little phrase, contrary to nature? He's conceding that his illustration is contrary to nature. I just want to point that out because somebody surely will hear me and they'll say, but that isn't the way it's normally done. Right. Keep this in mind. You're not supposed to make an illustration walk on all fours. Every once in a while I give an illustration and somebody comes up and takes my illustration 
and makes mincemeat out of it and, uh, and want to criticize my illustration. Well, I'm just happy Paul said this. He recognized that the illustration was contrary to nature. But the illustration is this. God planted a tree. Basically, it's the Abrahamic covenant. And um, now we get down to the New Testament and all the branches break off. They rejected the Messiah. And God grafts in wild branches. You are the wild branches if you are a Gentile. Now, Paul's application is, don't you get too haughty about that. Don't boast. Don't go around with a puffed-out chest saying, well, look, we got in. Those poor Jews didn't. What he's saying. So he says, verse 18, do not boast against the branches. That is the branches that got cut off. But if you boast, if you take a superior attitude toward Jews. Oh, this is getting interesting. If you boast over the Jews, he says, verse 18, remember that you do not support the root. The root supports you. What's he saying? They were the root before you came around. So don't get this superior attitude toward the Jews. I think this verse, as much as any verse I know of in the Bible, is against anti-Semitism. The point is that any verse, as much as any verse I know of in the Bible, this verse is against you taking a superior attitude toward the Jews. Frankly, that's been a problem. It's been a problem all through Christianity. Uh, no less than Martin Luther was greatly against the Jews. And Paul says, don't do that. Don't boast. Don't take that kind of an attitude toward the Jews. He continues this. Look at verse 19. You will say then, Branches are broken off that I might be grafted in. <laughs> Look at this. They got broken off just so I could be grafted in. He says, verse 20, well said. But the real problem was because of unbelief they were broken off. They got broken out of God's program because they rejected the Messiah. And he says, and you stand by faith. How did I get involved in God's program? Because I was superior to the Jews somehow? No. I got involved in the program by trusting Jesus Christ. I got in by faith. And so he says, do not be haughty, but fear. Now, I want you to look at your Bible carefully for a second. Verse 18 says, do not boast. Verse 20 says... Do not be haughty. All the same point, and that's the point he's making. Do not be proud. Don't take a superior attitude toward Jews just because you know the Lord and they don't. The surprise twist at the end of verse 20 is he says, but fear. Not only should you not be haughty, but you should fear. Now, he explains that. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he won't spare you either. God cut the Jews out of his program, at least temporarily. 
when they rejected the Messiah, and he's suggesting God just might cut out the Gentiles again. He says in verse um, 22, Therefore consider the goodness and the severity of God on those who fell. Severity toward you, goodness, if you continue in his goodness, otherwise you will be cut off. And all he's saying is this. This is awesome. God cut out Israel. And if you get too boastful and proud, he may just cut out the... Um, Gentiles and go back to the Jews. Pretty heavy passage of Scripture. He's saying God is at once good, a Greek word which means kind, and he is also has severity. And the basic root of the Greek word means to cut off. So he says God's able to do this any time. Verse 23, And they also, if they do not continue in unbelief, will be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. For if you were cut out of the wild tree, which is wild by, of the olive tree, which is wild by nature, and were grafted contrary to nature into a good olive tree, how much more will these, who are the natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree? Wow. <laughs> I don't think I've ever heard anybody teach this. I don't think I've ever heard anybody teach this passage in Romans. But that passage is saying, and here's the application. There is a future program for Israel. That's the point. Now he's saying you need to know that, and in the meantime, don't be proud, but fear. I need to clarify one little point, and I'll wrap all this up. I think some might be tempted to apply this to personal salvation. Well, if God could cut out Israel and graft us in, maybe he'd cut us out as individuals. God could cut out the Gentiles and cut back in the Jews, um, and maybe he could cut us out of personal salvation. That is not the point of this passage. We are not talking about individuals being saved. We're talking about the nation of Israel. And that is all he is talking about. It would be inappropriate to apply this passage to an individual's personal salvation especially in light of the fact that in chapter 8, he said, whom he justified, he will glorify. And he also said in chapter 8, nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. I don't think it's legitimate to apply this to um, individual uh, salvation. But I do think the context is saying God started with a program for Israel. They rejected the Messiah, and God cut them out. But don't get too haughty and be just a little bit afraid because God will cut out the Gentiles, and he'll graft Israel back in. Now, that's what the passage is teaching. Now, let me sum all this up. The conclusion is that believers should not boast or be haughty toward the Jews because of their current unbelief. The simple reason, God has a future program for Israel. That's the point of this passage. The answer to the question, does God have a future program for Israel, is absolutely. And this passage teaches it 
very, very clearly. God is going to one day save all Israel. Now, let me make one observation that I think is critical to understanding Romans, Romans 11. In the first ten verses of this chapter, Paul talked about the unbelief of Israel and suggested that their rejection, their unbelief, was not total, it was only partial. Now, in the second paragraph of Romans chapter 11, in Romans 11, beginning at verse 11 and going through verse 24, he is teaching that Israel's rejection is not permanent. It is only temporary. That, I think, summarizes the thrust of what Paul is saying in this passage of Scripture. Now, at the beginning, I ask, does God have a future program for Israel? And I suggested that the premillennialists answer that yes, because they take the promises of the Old Testament literally. The amillennialists say no because they go to those promises in the Old Testament and they spiritualize them. I frankly, candidly think the amillennialists are wrong. Some of them are very sincere, godly people, but on this issue, they are just wrong. That's all. No less than Robert Louis Stevenson, yes, the famous poet, said this, and I quote, I cannot understand how you theologians and preachers can apply to the church or a multiplicity of churches scripture promises which in their plain meaning apply to God's chosen people, Israel, and to Palestine, and which consequently must still be future. The prophetic books are full of teachings which, if they are interpreted literally, would be inspiring and a magnificent assurance of a great and glorious future, but which, as they are spiritualized, uh, then are applied to the church, and they are a comedy when that's done to them. I agree with him. I think that is exactly right. So, I would say God has a future program for Israel, and that means the promises of the Old Testament are to be taken literally, and that means Jesus Christ is going to come back, he is going to give the land of Palestine to the nation of Israel, and he's going to give a kingdom which will be an everlasting kingdom. Let me put the whole thing into perspective. I'm not sure where in his writings he said this. I've looked and can't find it. But Harry Ironside, I was once told, had an illustration that puts this all in perspective. What he said was this. Israel was God's main train on the main track. But they rejected the Messiah. So God ran Israel on a sidetrack. And he started another program called the church. And it came whistling by, and then he pulled the main train back on the main track. And it went, chugging along. 
Now that's the image of Paul and the olive tree. God's program was the olive tree. Israel's branches were lopped off. We were grafted in. Now he says, don't get too haughty too quick. We could Gentiles be lopped off and God will come back and put in Israel, which is precisely what's going to happen during the tribulation period and the millennium. If you want to use Ironside's illustration of the train, the main train was Israel. It got sidetracked. And that's where they are today. And we are the main train on the main track. But one day, God's going to put Israel back on the track. Now, what's all that got to do with us? Well, we'll see that as we look at the last paragraph in Romans chapter 11. But I can tell you right now that one of the things Paul does is he says all of this ought to cause gratitude to God that he has saved us. That God, who is sovereign and could put anything or anybody he wanted to on the track, has chosen to use their unbelief to allow us an opportunity to trust Jesus Christ and be saved. And as you look at God's marvelous program throughout the sweep of the scriptures, it ought to produce great gratitude in your heart that he's allowed us to be saved. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we don't have to take half our Bible and throw it out because you aren't faithful to your promises. We thank you that we have the assurance that you will fulfill every promise that you made to Israel. That reassures us that you will fulfill every promise you've made to us. Thanks, Father. In Jesus' name.